we all have our versions of what that looks like. And when I, I don't talk about one middleberry, but I do talk about connected middleberry. And I think um, if, as we think about the next phase of leadership, or as you so put it, beautifully put it, the wavelet of, of uh, new folks who are leading, I hope that the connectedness that has been important to so many women leaders in the past in higher ed, that there are ways in which we see and can make visible the reasons to be connected to each other. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When Lori Patton became president of Middlebury College in 2015, it marked the beginning of a quiet transformation at one of the nation's top liberal arts colleges. Patton is the first woman to lead Middlebury in its 223-year history. Lori Patton is changing the face of Middlebury in significant ways. She has championed diversity, and in just over a decade, Middlebury has roughly doubled the number of domestic BIPOC students, who comprise almost 40% of the student body of the class of 2026. The number of first-generation college students at Middlebury has also nearly doubled, and now represent about one in five students admitted to the school. Patton has also led Middlebury to do an about-face on fossil fuel divestment, For years, the Middlebury administration rejected student divestment demands. But in 2019, Patton announced the Energy 2028 plan, in which Middlebury would divest its $1 billion endowment from fossil fuels and commit to having the college be completely powered by renewable energy by 2028. Environmental activist and author Bill McKibben, who is a distinguished scholar at Middlebury, tweeted at the time that this move placed Middlebury, quote, among the very greenest institutions in the world. Patton is now confronting a future in which diversity initiatives at Middlebury and other colleges face significant headwinds. A conservative Supreme Court is expected to end or curtail race-based affirmative action later this year. Lori Patton is a scholar of South Asian history, culture, and religion. In addition to being president of Middlebury, she's also a professor of religion. Patton came to Middlebury from Duke University, where she was a professor and dean. She has also been on the faculty of Emory University and Bard College. I began by asking President Patton what it meant to her to be the first woman to lead Middlebury College. When I first arrived at Middlebury, I said that Middlebury had been ready for a woman leader for a long time, and I think in terms of its values, um, I, I characterize Middlebury values as integrity, rigor, connectedness, curiosity, and openness, those five values. And if you have those values, and most Middlebury folks that I meet do in some way or other, then you would be open and curious and connected in such a way that a woman leader in 2015 would not be a big change. Um, So in general, I think that has been the case and that has been my experience. There are times when, when you have 215 years of thinking in a particular way about what leadership looks like, I am very clear and connected and 
open about saying, actually, I want to lead a different way. Um, I'm a very collaborative leader. And I also am a very deliberative person, which means sometimes in a woman that gets read as um, something like, ooh, is she going to make a decision? And so, and I always make decisions. Um, and so what I now signal, because that's a new way of being for some folk, is I'm going to make a decision on Friday, or I'm going to make a decision at the end of this meeting or whatever that looks like. So there are times when getting used to a different style of leadership um, can be something you need to communicate. And uh, the example that I frequently give is when we were working on our energy plan, Energy 2028, which I feel is something good I did for the world. Um, and that's about as simple and as basic as it gets. Uh, we can talk more about the specifics of that at some point, if you like. But it was bringing together really disparate groups of people. And it was what I love to do. And having them figure out that slice of thing that really matters to all of them and then going for it. And we were able to do it. Um, and we did it by gardening together, by slow planting and nourishing and each conversation at a time it actually wasn't that slow it was only it was like over a year and a half and when we got to the final moment we we got it together and people have, many people got the vision of it and other people are like okay I'll go along I was fine with that and we ended up being a case study for Harvard Business School on um, emerging styles of nonprofit leadership so I felt like there was a, a new way of celebrating a kind of collaborative leadership style that sometimes is less visible. And uh, so and and I think that was that was particularly rewarding to me as I thought about what it meant to be a woman, a strong woman leader. You are part of a wave or wavelet of women leaders in higher education. Currently, about a third of colleges are led by women but a number of leading institutions have all recently named women to be their next presidents. This includes Harvard, Columbia, Dartmouth, MIT, the University of Pennsylvania, and George Washington University. How do you think that's going to change the academy, which is a world you have been in for much of your life, and you came up through it as a place led by white men? That's changing. How is it going to change college and academic life? Such a great question. Um, I think a couple ways, you know, when Drew Faust took on the role at Harvard, one of the things that she talked about um, was making one Harvard. Um, that was one of her mantras. And um, I think that there are ways in which academia its strength and its weakness is that we live in distributed silos, right? That we all have our little um, worlds and some people would say fiefdom, some people would say silos. But if you have a generous definition of a silo, it means the way I talk about it so that it honors people who exist in silos, um, that they are communities of well-intentioned people who have very little incentive to communicate outwards. And so that means that you can 
um, exist in the silo and not even know sometimes that you're in one. Um, and I think what Drew tried to do, which I always admired, um, and it's extremely hard to do, um, was create connectedness. Um, Middlebury itself, although it is known as a uh, liberal arts and sciences college, and that is its um, has been its raison d'etre for 222 years. It also has amazing graduate schools. And so we exist in this really interesting third space where we will never be a university, but we're going to be this really cool liberal arts and sciences place that has awesome graduate programs. And a lot of liberal arts and sciences uh, colleges are like that. I think of Bryn Mawr, I think of Lewis and Clark, I think of Bard College, really interesting places. And then of course the big universities, we all have our versions of what that looks like. And when I, I don't talk about one mid Middlebury, but I do talk about connected Middlebury. And I think um, if, as we think about the next phase of leadership, or as you so put it, beautifully put it, the wavelet of, of uh, new folks who are leading, I hope that the connectedness that has been important to so many women leaders in the past in higher ed, uh, Ruth Simmons is another uh, awesome, wonderful example of that. Um, she was president of Brown. Correct. Um, that that she that that there are ways in which we see and can make visible the reasons to be connected to each other that aren't necessarily part of our incentive structures. And I think that's an incredibly important um, mode that many women feel is part of reshaping the culture of academia now. And they all do it in different ways and in their based on their own interests and expertise and so on but what, what what do you mean by that ways of being connected that are not connected to our incentive structures so um if you take an example of the academic department right you tend to have your incentive structures of um junior people lecturers um adjuncts and tenure track uh folks as they as they go up the ladder and their work is to be rewarded for their teaching and research and service, and that's awesome. It tends to be field-specific. So collaborating across fields um, is, is sometimes really hard and takes like that extra effort. And yet that connectedness is sometimes the thing that will solve the world's most pressing problems, that um, the gnarly problem or the wicked problem, depending on whether you're on the East Coast or the West Coast, how you define it. Um, so that knowing that you have to collaborate with people outside your field or your department when your professional uh, advancement comes from within that department is very, very tough. And so I think there are lots of ways that many universities and colleges have changed that structure, or tried to change that structure, uh, creating interdisciplinary hires, creating interdisciplinary research institutes, where people can work on common problems. I think that has happened, but it needs to happen even more deeply uh, because I do think that um, the kind of education that we need to give people in the 21st century needs to be profoundly relevant. And when I mean, when I say that, I don't mean that therefore we should only be working on current issues. I think I study the ancient world in my scholarship um, I think that is profoundly relevant. But what I mean is that there are 
issues that are immediately before us that require a new kind of literacy. And I think that um, I can talk a little bit about what I see in terms of those literacies, but I think in particular, the ways in which we need to develop new languages to develop to, to develop new ways of thinking to address these issues are part and parcel of what I mean by connectedness that can't exist in a single department. Talk so, about the, the literacies that you think are important right now. Yeah, so um, what we have developed at Middlebury, which I think we are uniquely positioned to do, but I do think it's important for, for all uh, institutions to do in their way and define according to their strengths. Um, the first is data literacy. Uh, data literacy, what I mean by that is not just being able to code or being able to think through a data set or do statistical analysis, although those are foundational. I also think we need to think about as soon as something like chat GPT comes up, we find a way to be critical of it and make it in service of humanity rather than the other way around. And um, so that data literacy is ethical uses of data uh, in, and humanizing uses of data. Um, second is cross-cultural literacy. That is a way of thinking about cultures and the contributions of cultures that have come to our world that we need to know more profoundly. It's about expanding, and um, sometimes folks talk about it as inclusivity, uh, but we talk about it as um, uh, certainly as inclusivity, but also a kind of cultural intelligence um, that I think matters even more now because it expands your your sense of empathy and your effectiveness uh, in the world. Um, our traditional strength has been in languages. That is where you get a profound sense of empathy for another culture is when you learn its language. Uh, and uh, we want to expand that to think about cultural languages too. Um, the third is uh, environmental literacy. Um, I think that it is important for every citizen to know what the impacts uh, of global warming are. Uh, in addition to what they can do about it in their communities. And literacy also involves knowing that you can take action. And I think often people feel so overwhelmed by the hugeness of the problem that they feel that there's nothing I, they can do. But literacy in that sense gives a sense of empowerment for, for all of our students. And then finally, conflict transformation literacy, which is a way, in my view, it's a way of making democracy concrete. I think for many people, democracy has become an abstraction. And what training people to manage their own conflicts is all about, uh, whether it's through arbitration or through conflict mediation or for um, uh, restorative justice or restorative practices, we're moving on all of those fronts at Middlebury. Um, that, that conflict transformation literacy allows us to find out what democracy is all about, what collaborative decision-making and checks and balances is all about in a really different way than just learning about forms of government, although that is also foundational. Um, so those are the four literacies that I think are incredibly important for any um, educational institution. Middlebury is addressing them with its particular strengths in languages and uh, global study abroad and um, a number of other new initiatives, which I'd be happy to talk about. But 
Those are the interconnected ones. Sorry. Yeah. No, uh, I want to pick up on that last one on conflict transformation. Last year, Middlebury received a $25 million grant, it, the largest programmatic grant um, ever in the college's history. So explain what this is, what you're doing with it, and what is conflict transformation? Yeah. Um, so conflict transformation is a term that has been um, popularized or made comprehensible by a wonderful scholar named John Paul Lederach, who has worked um, in uh, parts pretty much all over the world. He's particularly focused now in um, in South America and Colombia, but he has done work in um, a number of different Asian countries and uh, uh, in Europe. And the idea is, as Lederach writes about it, that conflict is always going to be with us. And in fact, conflict is, is a good thing. Um, and what we need to do is analyze the structure of the context and the societal surroundings of conflict so that when it comes up, we can make the inevitable tension that comes from conflict productive rather than destructive or constructive rather than destructive. And um, I think that's an incredibly important way of looking at conflict because it's realistic. Um, and it says, hey, you know, you can't run away from conflict. You have to have skills to manage it. And so um, that's the basic idea. So the two forms of responsibility there, if you were being trained in conflict transformation, is to analyze the conflict, um, know the societal pressures that lead to it, the structural issues that lead to it, and then find ways to transform the conflict so that it's productive um, in some way or other. Um, so, And I, I, I just want to point out the language in the past, we used to talk about conflict resolution, and there would be yes. courses in conflict resolution. Right. You don't use that language. What's the difference when yeah. between resolution and transformation? So resolution, it tends to be, it's not always, but it tends to be case by case, uh, a paradigm that looks at, okay, here's a conflict, and now we found a resolution for it. We found a, a solution, and now we can move on. Um, and Lederach is saying, yeah, maybe you could move on, but likely not. Um, more likely that that tension is always going to be there. So, for instance, if there is in a neighborhood a tension between um, a police force and its citizenry, how do you understand the structure behind that and then change that relationship so that even though there's always tension there, that there will be modes and ways of addressing that conflict differently once it comes up again. Um, and so I think restorative practices is uh, the method of restorative practices, which looks at how a community gathers together when harm has been done, whether that's in our case, roommate to roommate, or whether it's when someone has vandalized something in the town, or whether it's um, a lack of understanding in a legislature, whatever that might be that there are ways of gathering together to address the harm that might have been done and continue as a community together. Um, so conflict transformation is a kind of more universal umbrella to all of the approaches that um, people use for conflict transformation, like arbitration, mediation, to your point, conflict resolution, restorative practices, restorative justice, 
All of those are different. Deliberative dialogue is another one. Um, all of those are different. And what we're doing at Middlebury is training students at the high school level through our Breadloaf School of English, which trains high school teachers, our undergraduate level in both academic life and in um, residential life and um, non-academic uh, work and athletics and so on, uh, and in uh, the student experience more broadly in their community engagement, as well as our graduate students and uh, also our students abroad. And each of those five areas have very specific approaches to how they're looking at conflict transformation. So for example, in our schools abroad, we're looking at ways in which um, different cultures have different modalities of thinking about conflict transformation. What can we learn from them? Um, we also have wonderful studies of um, how historical knowledge and exchanging ideas about historical knowledge can actually heal conflict. Um, an example would be in our um, school in Japan, our study abroad school in Japan, we're looking at people who've experienced um, World War II, in particular ways, Japanese citizens, and connecting with um, people who have Japanese citizens in America who are uh, incarcerated, and joining together to think about telling a joint story about that time. So, um, all sorts of different examples I could give you. I could talk forever about it, but we're finding that in academic life, the way I think about academic change is not through mandate only, although there are some mandates that are incredibly important, but when you want to really change people's point of view and orientation toward a curriculum, I always say, have a party and see who comes because people get much more excited about something real happening. And so we are creating in conflict transformation a kind of ubiquity across all of the different levels of Middlebury that will allow people to see that this is a resource for them, just like a writing center is a resource for them or um, a, a um, center for, uh, for quantitative skills, for example. Well, I um, want to revisit a, a real-life conflict that Middlebury was in the news for um, in 2017 when more than five dozen Middlebury college students were disciplined for their roles in shutting down a speech by the conservative political scientist Charles Murray. Uh, Middlebury became a flashpoint in the national debate over free speech on campus. And there was criticism that the discipline fell unfairly on students of color, and on the other side, that the discipline was aimed at appeasing conservatives. Um, how do you reflect on that incident now, five years later? What happened? What would you do differently? Um, and perhaps this lens of conflict transformation that you now have a deeper kind of involvement in what might have what how might that have changed how this was uh, addressed yeah i think that's a great question um i think the first thing i would say is that um 2016 it was literally like three or four months after the election of 2016 and that was an incredibly difficult time for everyone um i was still a new president and that was also, I think, part of um, the dynamic, certainly for me as a leader, but also more generally. Um, and I think uh, a couple things. Our community, like most communities that have gone through this, and I would say 
pretty much most college communities have in some way or other, um, had some tension uh, erupt in this in this space over the last five or six years. Um, we were torn apart, and that was an incredibly difficult time for everyone because there were moments when um, students who wanted to debate these issues were felt that they couldn't, and students who felt that their voices had not been included and heard um, felt that they were silenced as well. And so it was a, a, a moment when the kind of hurt that the nation was feeling was instantiated and embodied on our campus. Um, and so one of the things that we resolved to do um, on any number of different levels, both in our approaches to these things, as well as how we might move forward in the future, was to reflect and pause on the relationship uh, between inclusivity and freedom of expression. And um, you may or may not have read um, what I've written about this, but one of the things that I felt was really important to do was to take on the responsibility of moving the community toward healing, as well as moving the community toward a new way of being and talking. Um, and I knew that it was gonna take a long time um, and that it was going to mean that that hurt was always gonna be part of us, that it was gonna be part of our history now. Um, and that was both hard, but also an incredible opportunity so the first thing we did, David, was to create, um, we got a grant from the Mellon Foundation to create a, what's called the Engage Listening Project. And one of the things that was so important for all of us to acknowledge is that we needed to listen to each other differently. Um, and we ended up having um, training for our faculty on uh, diversity of viewpoint in the classroom and managing difficult dialogues in the classroom. And there, one of the models that uh, we talked about earlier, the deliberative dialogue, uh, was incredibly important. Um, one of the things that matters a lot in these difficult moments is what's called scaffolded conversations, where you take one aspect of an issue only one day, and then you do another one, and then you do another one instead of you know doing it all at once. Um, and so more than half of our faculty now have been um, trained uh, in this approach. Um, and uh, what I was particularly inspired by was so many folks um, really wanted to engage with this and wanted to learn how to do this differently from all parts of the political spectrum. Um, and that led to this grant um, and uh, the way that we might think about this, because, you know, one thing that you you know if you are part of and love a community is it's always different than what's perceived from the outside or even what's reported. And what I felt very strongly is people wanted to connect. Uh, people wanted to engage and find a different way. Um, so I think one thing um, that we, our, our, our initial approach and feeling our way along in terms of success um, led to this larger grant, um, which, you know, if you look at all the things that are already being done um, in our community, we we were we've just kind of, in a really wonderful way, uh, erupted in in um, 
so many different aspects of thinking about how to build community with what I call uh, conflict transformation as a kind of techne in the Greek sense of um, an art that is practiced at home that also has technical power. Um, and that is uh, something that you can see all of the different approaches to conflict transformation being that. Um, I'll end by saying that another thing that we've really thought about and everyone is is struggling with this. My uh, VP for equity and inclusion, Coram Hussein, talks about being at home in the struggle. Allowing yourself to be at home in the struggle um, is incredibly important. Um, and that related to that is the idea of rights and responsibilities, that um, freedom of academic inquiry is, an, is a profound right that has to be the bedrock of who we are as a democracy. And every generation needs to think about what its responsibilities are in relationship to that very profound right in new and different ways. And that's the challenge that we've taken up. And I like to reframe it that way instead of uh, creating an uh, attention that you know is unproductive, but rather reframing uh, the issue of inclusivity versus free speech to be about rights and responsibilities. And then we can really move forward in some interesting ways. Is there, um, you know, you at that moment, this was March uh, 2017, uh, the college had to initiate some sort of disciplinary process. It had to be done expeditiously uh, before graduation. Uh, but now with the benefit of time and hindsight, is there anything you wish you had done differently? Um. I think that holding uh, each other accountable is important. Um, I think that there are uh, there are times when we probably could have taken a pause um, to reflect and talk to each other. Um, we felt the pressure in all sorts of ways. And so my sense of um, students knowing the policy, knowing that they violated a policy, those are real things that I would stand by, but I think spending more time to talk and engage and pause um, would have been something I, I probably would have done a little bit more of. Um, we also didn't have the resources that we do now to think about all the different options for people um, around how they might respond um, to difficult speakers on campus. And I think that was something that is incredibly important that we've developed since then is taking on those resources and really deepening those resources. President Patton, we are now, it appears, in the twilight era of affirmative action. Every expectation is that the conservative Supreme Court will end race-based affirmative action in some form when it rules, and of course we don't know this and we don't know the details of it, but uh, I assume you are looking further down the road to a time when Middlebury is going to have to change what it does. And I, I wanna get your thoughts on this, but first I maybe it's helpful to say, what has affirmative action meant to Middlebury up till now? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, we have been, really on a, a wonderful path in terms of my view that excellence is driven by uh, diversity of all kinds. And uh, 
we have really pushed on that, uh, certainly in the last 20 years. And we were, uh, say, in our low 20s or mid 20s, uh, diverse population and our student population. Uh, we are now almost 40% diverse for domestic students of color. And we've been able to do that uh, in the last uh, seven or eight years, which is tremendous on any number of levels. Um, and we also uh, were at around 11 or 12% for um, uh, first-gen students. We're now at 21% for our entering class. And so really pushing hard on, on those kinds of things uh, because the excellence is everywhere and the uh, opportunity is what is what we need to shape. And our job is to find that excellence. So um, that has been a big push for us on any number of levels. Our uh, financial aid uh, has also uh, student funding more broadly, which is what I prefer to call it, um, has also uh, risen dramatically. We We have been really pleased to see that even though um, our campus can feel uh, forbidding to someone who is not used to a uh, state like Vermont, where uh, most folks are white, uh, that it also can be a welcoming place in addition to a challenging place. And that's been our work in many ways over the last uh, 8, 10, 20 years 30 years. Um, and I also would say that um, our applicant pool has doubled, uh, pretty much doubled since uh, since I came on board. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, I applicant like to pool generally or from diverse populations? Uh, applicant pool generally. Um, so, uh, and our applicant pool from diverse populations has also increased. Uh, and I, I think there are a number of different reasons for that. The common app is one, of course, uh, during COVID, like many, many schools, we went test optional and that has shifted. Um, but our numbers were rising even even before then. So um, I like to to think that it is why what Mayor Bloomberg said to me once when he was convening college presidents, he said, Middlebury's been a cool, hot school for, for 40 years. Tell me how you do it. And I think it's because it's Vermont, among many other things, in addition to our um, insistence on being ourselves and not being like any other small liberal arts and sciences co college, as wonderful as all of the others are. Um, so I would say a couple things about that shift. Um, it has meant a lot, as you can see, to us. And I also know that uh, we need to respond to the new law in some really clear ways, one of which is um, if in fact it's not about checking a box, we still need to be deeply committed and remain deeply committed to diversity, to the principle that diversity drives excellence. Um, and that means excellence in an education that you are always going to learn more when people are different than you. And that means that um, we need to think about a whole different way of recruiting students um, that focuses on, number one, the partnerships we already have with places like the Posse Foundation. We've had uh, three Posses. We've been one of the oldest Posse partners when it first was starting. Um, Explain what that is for people who've never yeah. heard of it. Yeah, the Posse Foundation is a leadership um, uh, development program that focuses on getting students, finding students, 
and um, having them succeed in posses, literally in groups that are mentored and um, who have each other's back throughout their college experience. Uh, Debbie Biao, who um, started the program, um, has been incredibly successful with this in partnering with college campuses um, where students may not think of applying. And uh, so we have um, admitted with, in partnership with the Posse Foundation, a, um, a group from New York and then Chicago uh, a few years later. And then also um, uh, in uh, LA, California, we have a STEM Posse. And so, um, as Debbie Bial puts it, this is a leadership program where we go where the awesome students are, period, paragraph, and we create opportunities for them. Um, and so I think that's an incredibly important partnership, and we have many others like it um, with a program called QuestBridge. Um, and with uh, we also have a wonderful program uh, with a um, a program called Matriculate, which actually isn't Middlebury-based, but rather train students once they're at Middlebury to talk to high school applicants about the role and the importance of a college education, particularly at colleges they may not have thought of. So um, all of those kinds of partnerships are gonna matter for us. Um, we also have the luxury, David, of being able to read um, student applications very carefully. And so we're uh, able to see in student applications um, the ways in which they have overcome challenges, um, the ways in which we might think about them as um, bringing a diversity of thought to our campus, um, bringing a diversity of experience to our campus. So um, through our ongoing and existing partnerships, as well as through our ways of evaluating individual applications, we are going to continue to be committed to the ways in which diversity drives excellence. Um, I also think that if we are in a situation where we are not going to be um, uh, having an explicit use of race as one among many aspects uh, of building a class, that we will also still be able to go to our mission, right? Middlebury's mission is uh, we, through a commitment to immersive learning, we create uh, we educate students to lead creative, uh, engage consequential and creative lives, contribute to their communities and address the world's most challenging problems. Um, we can be mission-based in our thinking about building diversity. And I think this will be, uh, whether we want it or not, um, an opportunity to do that and return to mission and thinking about building a class. So. That's the I, way we're thinking. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I know that in the Supreme Court case, uh, students for fair admissions against Harvard, um, and they also filed suit against the University of North Carolina, there were amicus briefs filed by the University of California and the Universities uh, of Michigan, both states where by state law or referenda, race-based affirmative action had been struck down. And both of those university systems basically said they had been unable to hit the kind of diversity goals that they had achieved prior to those bans, much as they tried. And right. I remember with the University of California statistics, really uh, dramatic drops in the numbers of African-American students that they were able to admit. 
do you feel confident that you will be able to maintain your goals of diversity in a post affirmative action landscape? Yeah. Um, it's it again, it's such a great question. I think every college president is asking herself or himself or themselves that that question. Um, say a couple things. I feel deeply confident in Middlebury's commitment to the principles and its uh, savvy in figuring out how we move forward in a new uh, environment. Uh, what I think we're going to have to do and what most college presidents need to do these days is take it one year at a time. Um, we're going to be assessing the heck out of this um, every step of the way. Um, and uh, we will be continuing to look at the results that we have, um, not only after the first year, but the second, the third. I would also say that we have an advantage in that we are able to still read every application incredibly carefully. And um, that makes a difference uh, for, for everybody. We would not necessarily be able to do a kind of cutoff of everyone in the top 10%, and which is um, one of the things that Texas was did. Um, I would prefer to say that what we wanna do is is as we continue to read applications, can we say that this student brings that diversity and can tell a story with us as they have their education to us as they have their education here at Middlebury about their experience that will enrich all of us. And we are able to ask that question individually um, of students because we are small scale. Um, we are medium scale compared to many very small colleges, but we're still, still able to have that individual attention. And I think that will make the difference. That is what makes me continue to have hope in this environment. One of the jarring images of the last uh, few weeks has been uh, some of the one images coming out of Florida, where school, high school libraries and middle school libraries are being covered up. Uh, shelves are being covered up with what are essentially banned books. Uh, these are books often dealing with African-American history. And now we have the fact that the um, you know advanced placement AP courses, the highest level courses offered in most high schools, um, the approved curriculum has been, uh, well, there is some debate over whether it was adjusted to fit uh, Florida's criticism. But it has purged, you know, seminal thinkers, uh, people, Angela Davis, Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks, from the required reading list. They have now been moved to kind of a supplemental reading list. But the image endures that we are censoring history. We are, uh, and I guess what strikes me, I mean, students from these schools, students taking these courses are applying to Middlebury. Are they being well served and well prepared when they are coming from states which are actively engaged in managing and restricting controversial content or yeah. what they call controversial content? Yeah, I think the way you frame the question is 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 an answer. I would say absolutely not. Um, this is a trend that profoundly concerns me. Um, I think we should all be concerned about it. Um, it is essentially 
a way of saying that some folks' histories um, need to be told differently than other folks' histories. Um, I think we are, if we were to openly have these kinds of debates, messy, horrifically difficult as they are, on a brink, we could uh, locally, county by county, town by town, uh, state by state, have these debates about including each other's stories. And in that process, tell a new kind of American history. Um, what I worry about, in addition to the basic censorship that is now uh, taking hold, um, is that A, our students will not have the skills to think about how do we tell our histories? What should be included? What shouldn't be? Um, how do you emphasize one thing? And is it always at the expense of another? That's number one. Uh, but secondly, I worry that the stories that are so profoundly part of who we are, Native American stories, Black stories, um, stories of struggle and survival, and stories of ways that we need to think about our own history differently. It doesn't have to be a gotcha moment. It doesn't have to be a we're all bad moment. It can be rather, this was this was the struggle. This is what we need to continue to think about and struggle about. And this is how we now tell a different story. Um, that doesn't mean that the contributions of, say, uh, the the ancestors um, who who built a certain kind of America are therefore to be erased, but rather what would it look like to have a richer tapestry? Um, that I think is an incredible opportunity that all historians have and every academic institution has. Um, and that is uh, what I feel is particularly a lost offer opportunity. It has implications for the historical archive in addition to the library about what is included and what is held up. Um, we have a project at Middlebury and many institutions now do called the Twilight Project, which is looking at all the archives that we haven't been paying attention to um, and finding new ways to tell that story. I think part of the Im impoverishment that cancel culture on all sides of our, of our American life now, um, it, it creates a world where um, the lifting up of one story means the silencing of another. And it doesn't have to. Um, it can be, and some of the most interesting ways to tell history would be looking at interactions between populations, looking at ways in which um, when one population suffered, they still bounded back, became resilient. Um, there's so much hope in inclusive storytelling. And I really wish that the frame of an uncensored uh, way of thinking about history was about hope. Um, and that is what I deeply believe the power of an education should be. I want to switch gears, although I could talk about this one for a while, because I find it so deeply disturbing that uh, this kind of censorship, uh, maybe as a writer, it sort of uh, cuts to the quick for me, yeah. the idea that ideas are so dangerous that they must be purged uh, yeah. and, sh and people kept shielded from them. But switching gears a little bit, um, in 2019, you announced that Middlebury would divest 
from its fossil fuel holdings in its portfolio. This was a, a, a long protracted uh, debate on campus, the subject of protests. What led you to finally make that decision? Um, I think there were a number of different things that the story is a truly wonderful Middlebury story. Um, I do think that um, for Middlebury's environmental leadership, we needed to create a new stake in the ground. Um, we also felt that in 2018, there were a number of different scientific reports uh, that had come out that had shown something even more definitive than ever before about the direness of global warming and climate change. And um, this, if we are an educational institution, um, the number one thing we need to think about is how our ways of doing business reflect the values of science. Um, so part of it was all those scientific reports. Part of it was also um, the fact that we had, in my view, an intergenerational responsibility, um, that there is a kind of intergenerational care that really mattered. And so um, the key thing for me uh, also was that I don't want to make divestment alone, and, and I told the students this, a single issue. I think it is so much broader than a single issue, even though I know that it becomes a kind of defining issue, uh, particularly around um, uh, extractive fossil fuels. However, in my view, um, both educational commitment, which is our mission, um, as well as the uh, renewable energy focus was what allow people to sort of come together. Um, when we were working with the students um, on Divest Mid, we were talking all the time about um, that, this is that, that this does matter and the trustees are taking their proposals very seriously. And the number one thing for us that mattered even more than that was creating a world, a possible world in which we could be a model for addressing climate change more broadly, which included um, the renewable energy focus and the educational focus. So what came out of that was a four point plan, um, Energy 2028, and we are divesting um, over time. We are get, getting there pretty quickly um, in our portfolio, which has been very encouraging. In a way, that's almost a kind of mechanical thing that that is happening now. Um, the building to 100% renewability, renewable fuels, I think we are going to be one of the largest campuses to have done so by 2028, where we'll be entirely powered by renewable energy, energy in our core campus. Um, and that means building the larger, one of the largest solar fields in Vermont, which we um, broke ground on last year. Um, it means uh, uh, working with a company called Vanguard to build a biodigester in Salisbury, um, where the Goodrich Farm was able to rejuvenate itself. There's a lot of really wonderful things that have happened. And the students have really led the research on all of this. Um, and that's been an incredibly exciting thing to do and work with the community on. Um, that has not always been easy. There are always concerns about when you build a big um, energy structure, 
um, that that there might be uh, concerns around visibility and community access to other lands and and so forth. Um, but we've got through all of them, um, and uh, people are really excited about moving forward. Uh, the other big piece of it, which is harder in a way, is the 25% energy reduction, which is the fourth point, um, in addition to the education, educational component, the uh, renewable and the divestment. And that 25% energy reduction is really hard because we have um, a number of buildings that are very old and some buildings that are very new. And so given all of the buildings on campus, um, we are going to have to have a different model for each building. And that's going to be, um, that continues to be an incredible challenge. But we do have something called the Sustainability Solutions Lab, which is where students, faculty, and staff get together to look at uh, sustainable solutions for all of our energy uh, needs. And since we became carbon neutral in 2016, um, students drove that as well. We need to continue to think about um, student-driven success, and that becomes part of the educational component. Uh, we're working now on uh, developing a, a large uh, source of funding for creating uh, climate action as part of our curriculum and everything that we do, um, not because we want to create a, um, a kind of one-dimensional curriculum, but rather to say, what would it look like to have sustainable finance for people going into the work of finance? Um, what would it look like to have uh, sustainable arts uh, and so on? And uh, so we're real excited about the four-pronged nature of it and divestment as one of those four prongs. Um, I have this language called the Middlebury moment, which is when you know you're part of an incredible um, community and you just it gets crystallized in a moment. And that was uh, when I was working with students and my um, CFO, uh, David Provo, who's a wonderful educator in his own right, was also working with students and students kept talking to trustees even when it felt like you know there was nowhere to go, and then suddenly we found a way to go, uh, and the students were very anxious about the next step, um, and they were going to demonstrate. And I said to them, this was after they had done a lot of work um, uh, in the fall, and the trustees were voting in the winter meeting, um, and uh, I said, you know, you really don't need to demonstrate. The trustees are listening. Um, and I was, you know, college presidents, most of the time you play it cool, but there are times when you can get a little frustrated. And I said, you should be writing them thank you notes for thinking about this in really the profound ways that they are. They're they're listening to you. And so the day of the vote, there appeared in our doorway in our administrative office, uh, a very large bag of literally hundreds of thank you notes from all the students. <laughs> and that was the thing that kind of, Made it all work, you know. It's a revolution through thank you notes. <laughs> That's right. There you that go. Does sound uniquely Middlebury, President Lori Patton. I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. It has been a delight to talk to you. And by the way, I think your podcast is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.